There is no perfect solution to solve advisors' investment dilemma. Whether you outsource, go passive, or go DIY, there is no perfect answer. But two advisors who are doing something really interesting and different are Colin Lowe of Kingsfleet Wealth and Jonathan Crisp of Henson Crisp. Earlier this month, I met them at the Royal Exchange in Bank to discuss their joint venture. This is Jack Gilbert, Deputy Editor of NMA, and listen on to hear how the return of NMA's advisor profiles went. We'll have all four of you together. They set a room up and we put together this plan that we were going to save about £4.50 between us. It just didn't happen. And from that evolved the fact that we were all running advice portfolios mm-hmm. and they were getting bigger, more yeah. cumbersome. Yeah. And so we talked about doing a discretionary management scheme. What year was this in? This would be... 15? Yeah, 15. 15. So just after your last cover start? Yes. And because our advised portfolios got too big. So we then took a... So it started with four of us. The other followed the model portfolio route. Mm-hmm. So he would, that it worked for them, they felt, at that point. And, but we felt that we were getting bigger. And we were there was a big risk to a client of not returning a rebalance form in a timely fashion. And if we've got clients that travel a lot and clients are sometimes not so good at returning paperwork. Yeah. And so it was, how can we make this easier for clients and a better experience for them and then add some benefit to the businesses? Yeah. Because I guess if a client doesn't return the form for their fund switch, you've got like ended up with a different model for that actual client that they're not in the same as everyone else. And there was also a risk of error. From inputting, I w- we were having to employ extra people to check, do the four eyes checking on it, uh, and then that would have to happen numerous times because clients would some would re- some would return it straight away. Yeah. Others you'd have to chase, and it was it just became too big for too many clients, and the risk of an error became greater. Yeah. Was so this was before Mifid two as well. So Mifid two pushed a lot of people out to. to... Yeah. So I guess it was kind of lucky that it's happened and then it did happen, I guess. Yeah, there certainly wasn't any foresight. No. <laughs> we, were, we were totally oblivious to MIFID 2 being on the, on the horizon and the difficulties that would create for advice portfolios. Yeah. yeah. But um, thankfully, we already had, we were well down the route of having our XI in place before we heard that it was coming. So actually, yeah, it all worked fortuitously, really. Yeah, yeah. I guess it fit, fit well with the new regulations. Yeah. Colin and I have known each other for 25 years. Wow. So it just, and we have similar businesses, uh, small numbers of high value clients. Yeah. Uh, proper work financial professionals. Yeah, work. Yeah. So, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Similar part of the world, I guess it's not too far away. No, well, uh, we're sort of different ends of East Anglia, yeah. but um, that works quite well in a way. Yeah. And we're not, we're never competing for no. the same thing, are we? No. Um, and we don't, we have set different professional connections we work with. Yeah. So it, um, it's helped when we've done joint meet things whereby we can, Colin will bring some of his, I'll bring some of mine. I'm comfortable, Colin, talking to any of my professional connections. And likewise, it just works as a cohesive business. Mm-hmm. And um, did you, because obviously I'm sure you had conversations where you, I think you had, you'd be using existing DFMs before, yeah. before this. Some, but majority of ours was in advice portfolios because yeah. we struggled to see the value that DFMs were delivering. Yeah. For what they were charging, because I'm sure I was going to ask that question. I'm sure that you know you had conversations where you were like, we could either partner with a Bruin or yeah. whoever else, yeah. or you guys could do it yourselves. Yeah, 
and you you felt that they weren't weren't delivering value for. So what we were looking for for our clients, we still have some clients who use a DFM where generally they are aim portfolios yeah. where we don't have the knowledge, so we'll buy it in for specific clients. Yeah, and I think the feedback we had from a few clients who were using DFM models or DFM arrangements was, what actually are they doing? Because you're the ones advising me. Um, it's you that I'm listening to, it's you that I'm meeting with. So uh, what extra value are they bringing to the table? And sometimes that was quite a hard conversation to justify. Um, sometimes there was market timing issues and you just thought, why are they even trying to do that? Um, so yeah, they were trying to time the market. They were, yeah. So we, you know, one example, we had a client who put a significant premium into a pension. They didn't, they left it in cash for a month because they thought the value of the market was high. It went up 10% in that month. So, you know, it's not one of those things where you think, I'm just not sure that was a good move. Um, and trying to explain that way to a client is quite hard. So we'd rather have that conversation where we know what's going on. Yeah. And I guess you know the client as well, better than the DFMs do who are making yeah. those decisions, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing for us is that um, we are making all the investment decisions behind the scenes, cognizant of the fact that within a day or two, we will be sitting in front of a client having to explain it. Um, so it has to make sense. It's not just about the numbers of what's good value, what's not. It's about understanding. It's, it's very prod related, actually. It's all about target market and just thinking about, well, these people fit into that category so that, that um, solution works well for them. Um, and that's something that actually we can follow that all the way through. I think if you disengage that part and say, well, somebody else is going to take care of that particular bit of the process, uh, how do you know that they're going to actually deliver on the objectives mm. which are set? And again, there goes into a whole load of things about agent as client and all of those sorts of issues that a lot of people are totally overlooking. Yeah, because I guess the DFMs, from their perspective, they're trying to, you know, yeah, look at the market, you know, think about which way things are going, pick right funds and everything else but then it's, it's quite disengaged from what the clients like the, your, your own clients in the day isn't it and, and what their their goals and aspirations are so I guess you guys are I guess prod is all about what making the products the right that, that, that fits yeah, it's the about target market and, and the product and that's where it's very important for us that there's no way that every client uses these models. You know, it's very important for us to recognise that, that there are other options and solutions which will be more suitable for the client. John, I'll, I'll give you a quick couple of questions before you've got to shoot off then, because you've only got five. Sorry. So, no, it's fine. We can get we can, we can can get this. You couldn't do um, photos of that. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> that was important, the photos. Well, for a start, so how does it work? You say that not all of your clients will go into the RXI. No. How do you kind of... That's part of the... Um, with my advisory team, it's not that everybody gets it. It's if it's suitable for a client, what we will let them have it. Yeah, uh, and, and make it available to them. But for example, the uh, the aim portfolio is probably the easiest one to explain. In that, if the client wants an aim portfolio, or is better to have an aim portfolio to meet their needs, or they're better off to have a portfolio of EISs to meet mm -hmm. their needs. Actually, don't put them in RXI or for some of the lower value clients for some of my team actually a simple managed manage fund works just as well just for them multi -asset as, yeah, in accumulation stage yeah. yeah a lot of the well the majority of all of our clients who go into it are in it because they want the beliefs that we have they want the regular rebalancing 
they want to have this, the high, they're the higher net worth individuals who want this ongoing advice and reviews. Yeah, that makes sense, definitely. So I guess it's the majority, would you say it's the majority of clients do you think are kind of coming to, to you or is it? Oh, we have, a, I would say of the money we manage, about 60% is within RXI. Yeah. The yeah. active money that we're managing. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's 150,000 uh, threshold? Yeah. yeah. So I guess what, why did you come to that number, was that? Because below that, they can buy something off the peg, which is cheaper for them. And then we've the cost benefit for the client actually isn't there. Yeah. And it's got to be for better benefit of the client. Yeah. Why do they need to pay 23 basis points to RXI? It's an unnecessary cost Yeah. for them. That makes sense. And are the portfolios bespoke or are they kind of... Um, they are model portfolios. Model portfolios. Yeah. But would you, do you have any clients in bespoke ones that you've made for no. them or is it just all no. models? It's all models. We have some clients who've got... RXI as the core, and they'll have some satellite bits around the portfolios, mm -hmm. whereby we where they've got a particular interest in a sector, and it can be those clients have said, actually, I'd like to hold some money in this sector. Yeah, we will go and recommend a fund for that, but the core will sit within RXI. We have some clients who pick their own funds, and they will try it. They will look at well, I'm managing some RXI is managing other money. Who's going to do best? It's like, it's like a competition. Yeah, and that's how some of the clients see it. Uh, although they are in a, a managed portfolio. So who comes out best? It varies, because sometimes they will take a lot more risk than we would be comfortable with. Yeah. We've got one of our clients who's done incredibly well on technology. Yeah. But Maybe not it, so much in the last month. No, but it's a level of risk that we wouldn't have been comfortable with. But he's got this 50,000 that he plays with, and he will trade himself. And, and he's done really well up through COVID because of technology stocks. And actually, we would never have beat it, but he understands, and we manage, I think his overall wealth is around 600,000. He's got 50,000 that he manages, we manage the bulk of it. And that's more his fund money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's about control is important for you guys with RXI, like you kind of having, you, you're not out of, you, you kind of control what's going on yeah. with, with the investments. It's not like you're, yeah. Uh, Putting faith in the DFM or, or putting faith in the clients think, responding. He's able to explain to a client what's going on actually. Yeah. Um, that if the investment arrangements are really the engine that drives someone's financial planning, then to be able to explain what's going on if you're asked that question, I just think is really important. Um, I would find it very difficult to sit in a meeting with the client and they'd say, well, why is there 10% in Japan, as an example, and not be able to explain why. Um, so I think from our perspective, we try to keep it a very simple model. We try to keep it a low-cost model. And we try to keep it something that we can explain to people because um, that engages them. I think the more complex we make investments and more complex we make financial planning, the harder it is to engage with clients. And what do you think about some of the DFM's communication? Do you think it's perhaps overly complicated? I don't really look at it much because we've got really no need to. Um, I think sometimes there's an aim to justify what they charge, and I'm sure many of them have very good reason to do so, and it's perfectly good value. Yeah. Um, uh, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, um, and obviously with us just operating from uh, an office in Peterborough and an occasional office in the City of London, it does keep our costs quite significantly lower than... Um, yeah, perhaps some of the other DFMs. Oh, for sure, to, for sure. Yeah. 
Um, so it's 23 bips. Yes, at the moment. Yeah, we're, we're trying to put some further downward pressure on that. So, yeah. yeah, all being well, we'll be going a little lower than that. You know. Does that include VAT or not? Good point. Uh, well, because uh, obviously there was that at the moment, there was a Tatton oh, yes, case, and they, they found that well, for MPSs they yeah. didn't. So at the moment, moment. no, yeah. because we've we've had guidance to suggest that you don't need to do it yeah. at the moment. But it's under review, isn't it, following the last budget? Oh, is it? Yes, I didn't see that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you'd be watching the next budget or yeah. whatever the Chancellor does. Yes. About. Uh, yes, we will, and. But it was, it's always been about what's best for clients first. And is as we've grown in assets under management, we've constantly reduced the costs. Because Colin and I don't need to make a living from this business. Yeah. So we're able to pass the cost savings on to clients. Mm -hmm. And it started at 30 basis points and we've reduced it to 23. Yeah. And you're looking to reduce further. Yeah. And how does it work? So it's 50-50%, is it joint yeah, 50, venture? Yeah. Yeah, just to complete your adventure. And, um, and you're not looking to, um, it, this isn't the kind of profit making part of the business. This is. It, it needs to wipe its face. Yeah. And <laughs> it, and not cost us, because it cost a lot of money to get it off the ground. Yeah, I can imagine. And how long how long did it take to get FTA permission? 18 months, wasn't it? 18 months. Wow. Yeah, it was 18 months. yeah. And lots of due diligence and pain. Uh, but worth it in the end. And we've always taken a view that as long as it's not costing us when it's running we will we're happy to support it but what we don't it needs to not cost us lots of money to just to have it for the sake of having it and that's why we each time we've grown we've gone from 30 to and reduced it down with a, the, our eventual aim is to get it sub 20 basis points yeah but there needs to be the assets under management and so all we do is keep passing those savings on to clients and just reducing their fees. Another one we've, we have benefited from is when companies, when our fund managed fund houses come to us and say, we'll give you founder shares at better rates or we'll get better terms from them. Get kind of institutional prices. Yeah, yeah which again, get. we pass on, just pass on to clients. But you wouldn't get from the advisory portfolios. Definite benefit there. Yeah. see that. And I was going to say something else. How does it work in terms of uh, our exercise? Do you guys have a salary you take from? No, we take a small salary. I think it's two hundred pound a month each. Okay, so, <laughs> it's not going to break the bank. No, it's not. No. And uh, then we employ Alex part time. Yep. And that's it, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. And then obviously it's regulatory costs, PR, you know, all the same costs everybody else has. Yeah. Yeah. But capital adequacy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Capital. Significant. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but then we just let the money build up in the bank. So as cap capital advocacy requirements have changed, it's never been a real issue for us because we've not wanted or needed to draw lots of cash from the business. So it's always been cash positive. Uh, it's cash positive on a monthly basis. Yeah. So actually, we just leave it to build up and then we'll take a dividend each year if, we, if when we can. And that's as much as it. Yeah, it's never really been the driver, has it? No. Well, I think, interestingly, looking at our own IFA businesses, sort of before and after, in terms of the cost savings internally to those businesses, it's been quite significant. Because you're not getting people calling around trying to get... No, yeah. right. And, uh, and likewise, we've got our own sort of fund selection criteria that we apply. We're not then having to do all that at a micro level. We're able to do that across 
across the whole RXI portfolio, which yeah. is working very well. But um, just in terms of the admin yeah. at our own IFA level, is significantly reduced. So. I think I worked it out that it's about one and a half admin people saved by having RXI in Pence and Crisp admin people. Right. And to that, the reduction in possible delays, hold-ups. The risk as well. For of, yeah, things going wrong, errors. You know, you're reducing all of that by just managing everything centrally and getting it done really well. Yeah, no, definitely, you can see that. Um, well, I've still got you, Jonathan, a uh, quick, couple of quick fire questions. Well, for a start, um, well, I'll ask Colin this at the end, perhaps, but I'll ask this now. What do you do at the weekend? What's your weekend look like? Uh, football with my two boys Yeah. on a Sunday morning. Very nice. I don't like football. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> but they do. Yeah, they do. And that's to my wife. Uh, and I manage wild deer. Oh, wow. For an estate and nature reserve. Okay, nice. How many deer? Uh, there are, mm, there's a lot less each year because, what, it, because of the them? damage that well, I shoot them. Okay. You are. Because I control damage in the wood, ancient woodland. Okay. Uh, it's a, a nesting site for some rare, bird, rare birds and the deer damage the woodland. So by having, everybody wants to see some deer, but not, not too, too many, many deer. Well, they because they damage overpopulated as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so they have to be controlled. They're controlled and culled, and what happens? They get eaten, or they? Yeah, all the venison goes into the estate farm shop, and it's all sold off the out of the estate farm shop. Wow! So its food miles is about a mile and a half. Okay, not too much carbon footprint there. No, there isn't. No, and it's and it's seeing the benefit of the woodland improvement due to a sustainable number of deer. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was that was a very interesting question. I think my weekend's uh, much looking <laughs> much less exciting than that, John, um, for sure. Uh, and I'll ask Colin again this at the end on his side. But can you think of any um, uh, investing mistakes that you've made over the years? What we... you've learned from them? It can be personal. It can be years mm. ago. It could yeah. be something. I bought technology stocks in. The long time ago, when the technology bubble burst, <laughs> everybody bought. Yeah, and I bought a well-known fund house's technology fund as they launched it, and I did never have got my money back. Gosh, so yes, you can't say the fund house. No, but this is this dot com dot com, dot com bubble. Yeah, that was the one. Yes, that's the one that I got caught on. And what do you think about now? Do you think it's a similar position we're in? Or no, because I think technology's moved on. The requirements of technology are far greater. There's more of an understanding of it and more of the technology businesses actually generate cash 